Let's again turn to the Lord in prayer as we prepare our hearts for the reading and proclamation of God's word. Let's pray together. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. By patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are continuing our time in Acts chapter 15. Uh, Last week we looked at verses 1 through 21. We're going to go back and start in verse 13 this morning and go through verse 35. Hear the word of the Lord, it is written. After they, meaning Paul and Barnabas, finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had had has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are in of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria, and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. And so they sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off 
in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Last Sunday, we began our look at what became known as the Jerusalem Council, which was convened for the sake of dealing with the conflict in the church over the circumcision of the Gentile believers. It was argued by some Jewish Christians that circumcision was necessary for salvation. But this was not simply about circumcision, as we noted last Sunday. It was about whether or not Gentiles would be required to become Jewish, meaning that they would be required to observe all of the Jewish laws in order to be saved and welcomed into the family of God. The council, though, confirmed that what makes us Christian is not faith plus anything. God's word proclaims that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. As James noted by way of the prophet Amos, the inclusion of the Gentiles had been God's plan from the beginning. God had chosen to place his name on them as his people without any need for them to become Jewish, but simply through faith in Jesus Christ. To argue then that a Gentile must become a Jew in order to be saved and accepted into God's family was ultimately to oppose God's eternal revelation. And with this decision, the church put an end to this question of salvation by affirming the fullness of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, which is applied to our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. The church here declared that the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us on Calvary's cross is sufficient to save. Nothing needs to be added to his sacrifice. We are simply to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But it was my hope last Sunday that we could see the difficulty that the Jews faced in accepting that understanding and decision. It was not simply giving up their long-held traditions, which had been enculturated into them through the generations. That was difficult enough, but it also meant for them giving up what they had found comfort in, what they had found security in, what they had the power to control. The insistence of circumcision and observance of the customs of Moses then was in a way trying to remove the scandal of the gospel, that there is no way to earn salvation, that we are totally helpless. That salvation comes by the grace of God alone. That it comes simply by resting in the work of Jesus Christ and in his righteousness. This continues today, by the way, as much as it went against the first century Jewish Christian sensibilities, 
how much more does it go against our sensibilities as those living in a very individualistic context where self-sufficiency is highly valued and any sort of dependency is looked down upon, where there's a mentality to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. As strange as it sounds, it seems easier to follow a list of do's and don'ts than to surrender ourselves to the Lord and to trust in his provision. But this is part of our fallen human condition. We want to be in control of our own destiny because in the end, we want to be free from God. We want to be our own gods. We want to live for our own glory. We want to be able to pursue that which we have determined will make us happy and satisfied. And sometimes that comes as rebellion against God in the form of living in complete lawlessness. But sometimes, as seen in the Pharisees, it takes the form of attempting to live in perfect righteousness then we believe God will owe us something. But the gospel tells us both the bad news about ourselves and the good news that we've been offered in Jesus Christ. The bad news is that we are sinners far more than we think ourselves to be. And the consequence of our sin is far worse than we think it is, justly deserving God's wrath. But the good news of the gospel is this, that God in his great love gave us not what we deserve, but sent his only son who has offered his perfect life of obedience in place of our sinful lives, taking the punishment of our sin on himself, that we might in him have forgiveness of sin and peace with God. Jesus has defeated sin and death in his crucifixion and resurrection on our behalf in order that we might have righteousness and freedom in him. So in Christ, we have been freed from sin and death, but we have also been freed from our efforts to make ourselves righteous according to the law. We've been freed from the law. And make no mistake, freedom in Christ is at the heart of the Jerusalem Council's decision. This was a moment for the early church to claim the freedom won for her in Jesus Christ. I mentioned last Sunday that conflict can be a good thing in the church. There are times in which conflict arises because the church needs to be pushed out of her comfort zone into the life that God has for her. There is conflict that comes because there's need for reform. There's a need for the church to be conformed more closely to God's word, to break out of unfaithful ways of thinking and doing things and to grow in obedience to God. And that's exactly what's happening here. This is a conflict that needed to happen for the church to finally live into the freedom given in Jesus Christ. It wasn't simply about upholding the theological integrity of the gospel. It was about the implications of the gospel in the life of believers. There were obviously Jewish Christians who were professing Christ, 
even as they remained bound to the law. They hadn't truly surrendered themselves to Jesus Christ. They weren't trusting in his work on the cross as a full and perfect atonement for their sins, which meant they weren't living in the freedom won for them in Jesus Christ. And they were insisting that the Gentiles do the same. And as Peter questioned the wisdom of placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, the Gentile disciples, that neither our fathers nor we had been able to bear, what Peter was challenging these Jews to think about was not just freedom for the Gentiles. It was also freedom for themselves. James did the same thing in verse 19 when he declared his judgment that the Gentiles should not be troubled any longer. We should notice that this same language made its way into the letter that the council sent to the Gentile Christians in Antioch. As they declared that those who came troubling you with words, unsettling your minds, had not been sent by the church in Jerusalem. These were, in other words, unauthorized teachers bringing an unauthorized message. But this word troubled is a military word. It speaks to the way an army plunders its enemy. This is what the Russian military is attempting to do right now in Ukraine. And here is the image James was giving. Trying to bring these Gentiles into bondage under the law was ravaging their souls. Just as destructive as an army's devastation of enemy territory. Just as almost the entire world recognizes that the Russian army needs to vacate Ukraine and recognize and respect their freedom, so too must the Jewish Christians do in respect to their fellow believers who are Gentile. No additional burden should be put on the Gentiles beyond what God had required. And here's the good news. God himself has bore all the trouble necessary. He's bore all the trouble necessary for our salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. We have been freed from this trouble. But this was the gospel not just for the Gentiles, it was also the gospel for the Jews. There was also a word for them here to stop with all of their striving to find their salvation in their own works, their own efforts, their own righteousness. Rest in Jesus Christ by faith. Live in Christian freedom. So this conflict was at its core really about confirming within the church community the freedom that Jesus Christ had died to bring. And we can read Paul's letters to the Galatians and see this. What is the theme of Paul's letter to the Galatians? It's freedom, right? Paul declares in this epistle, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Don't be slaves any longer to the Jewish laws, a means by which we are trying to be saved. You are free to rest in Jesus Christ and to follow him in faith. Slavery to the law is traded for slavery to Jesus Christ, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. 
So the encouragement and challenge to the Jewish Christians in this conflict was to no longer be held captive under the law, but to recognize that the law was meant only as a guardian until the Lord Jesus came. The council confirmed their call to live in Christian freedom. And the encouragement that came out of this for the Gentiles was that they were now recognized as being full members of the church by faith alone, apart from the customs of Moses. Having been brought into the family by baptism of the Holy Spirit, they could simply freely follow Jesus Christ in faith. And this meant that this conflict brought a new sense of unity to the church. It was the unity that God had intended, but that had been denied thus far by these modes of thinking and these practices that had not yet been conformed to the gospel of grace. But we don't want to miss the challenge to the Gentiles that we find here. There's not only a, a challenge to the Jews to live into freedom, there's also a challenge to the Gentiles. Even as they were freed from the trouble of becoming Jewish, there are a couple of challenges for them here. We find, in, we find these in verse 20 and again in verse 29 in the regulations given to them by the council. And one challenge was that the Gentiles mustn't misunderstand and thus abuse their freedom in Jesus. One of the four regulations sent to the Gentiles in Antioch was to abstain from sexual immorality. Even as the Gentiles were told that they had been given freedom in Jesus Christ, they mustn't understand that this freedom was in some way some sort of license to sin. The moral law had not been abolished. Freedom in Christ was not freedom to do as one would like to indulge themselves in the passions of the flesh. It was freedom from bondage to sin. It was freedom from the law. It was freedom to live in the joy and peace of Jesus Christ. Freedom to pursue and obey Jesus Christ. As Paul says to the Galatians, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And Paul will go on in Galatians to instruct the church to walk by the Spirit, not seeking to gratify the desires of the flesh. So even as they were free to retain their cultural identity as Gentiles, it didn't mean that they could bring all of their culture with them. Sexual sin, which was particularly prominent in their culture, was one aspect of their culture that needed to be done away with as they came into the community of faith. This isn't much different for those who come to faith in Jesus Christ in Western culture today. And it's helpful for us to recognize here that some sins need to be addressed specifically because of our particular context. This is part of keeping conflict out of the church. But there has been a lot of complaining happening in the church in America today by those who argue that there's too much attention given to the issue of sexual sin. Some have questioned why it's addressed so much, given that it isn't the worst 
sin. It's not worse than other sins. But I think we get our response here in Acts 15. It's addressed more than other sins because it's pervasive in our cultural context. And not only that, it's actually celebrated in our culture. There aren't many other sins that run rampant in our society that are celebrated as sexual sin is. There's not a month-long celebration called Gluttony Pride Month or Greed Pride Month, right? These are recognized as vices even by non-Christians. They're recognized as destructive to our humanity and to community. The early church found it wise then to address this particular sin among these young believers growing up in Christ in that sort of cultural context. The other challenge that the Gentiles faced was also in relation to their freedom. Here's the issue. As their Jewish brothers and sisters in the church now wrestled with their own freedom from Jewish customs, the Gentiles must be careful to be gracious to them as they adjusted to this new reality. This meant their freedom must be used wisely, discerningly, not just to avoid sin, but in a way that actively sought to maintain unity and peace in the church. And even Paul, who accurses those who teach some other doctrine than salvation by grace through faith, continues his exhortation to the Gentiles to not use freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but, as Paul encourages, listen to this, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one Word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. What Paul encourages here is a life filled with the love and grace of God. And this is a very, very important word in the midst of conflict. Every conflict you see is an opportunity for those on the winning side to rub their victory in the face of those on the other side. It is an opportunity to gloat. But the gospel calls us not to be sore winners. Rather, at every moment, it calls us to humility. The gospel calls us to gentleness with one another. It calls us to long-suffering. It calls us to a loving graciousness. Again and again, we see the imperative in Scripture derived from the example of Jesus Christ set for us and in response to the saving mercies of God demonstrated in him. This is how the church grows in unity. This is how the church gives faithful witness to Jesus Christ. This is how the church brings glory to God. And so what the Gentiles are encouraged to do here by the council is to willingly to willingly restrict their own freedom for the sake of others. Even as they were freed from obedience to the Jewish customs, they are encouraged to accommodate themselves to their Jewish brothers and sisters by observing some of the dietary laws. Abstain from certain foods that were recognized as not being kosher in order to limit offensiveness and to maintain table fellowship with those who 
would still have a tender conscience concerning these things. And it might seem odd to us that in one breath, freedom from Jewish customs is proclaimed. Salvation is firmly placed in the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In the next breath, however, restrictions based on Jewish dietary law are placed on the Gentiles. And it might get our heads spinning. Should we or should we not then reject that obedience to these laws is necessary? And the answer that James and the others give is to flatly condemn any insistence that salvation comes from faith in Jesus plus anything. But, but, having established that, having strongly affirmed the gospel truth that salvation is by faith alone, how people handle dietary issues within the community of faith is still an issue. It is an an essential issue, but it is still an issue that plagues the conscience of some Jewish believers, which means that it was an issue that could disrupt fellowship within the local church communities. It was an issue then that must be handled with care. Now, we might be inclined to think, well, if the Jewish people had a problem with what was considered acceptable food, then that was their own problem, right? The Gentiles shouldn't have to compromise what they believe, which is actually correct due to some outdated Jewish customs. The sexual sin issue we get, but the dietary issue, well, maybe not so much. But all of this is interconnected. It all has to do with what would have been found offensive to Jewish believers. Unrepentant sexual sin could be a reason to refuse table fellowship to another. And so the Gentiles not only needed to repent of what the culture around them found normal, they needed to understand the ways in which this sin would disrupt fellowship. The Gentiles should likewise consider other things that might cause unnecessary offense, though, even if those things were non-essential issues. Obviously, dietary issues are among those at the top of the list, as noted here. And the wise and loving and gracious thing to do was not to rub their freedom in the face of their fellow believers, but to limit their own freedom when they were with these believers who might take offense. This is how peace and unity in the church is maintained. And notice how the Gentile believers reacted when they received this news. They were so thrilled to get these men to come and deliver these news, this letter to them. Did they grumble about it? Did they complain that it was the Jews who needed to adapt? No. Luke tells us that they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoiced not only because their freedom in Christ was confirmed, but because it seemed wise and loving to consider what was needed to maintain fellowship with their fellow believers who were acknowledged to be facing the difficulty of breaking these customs that were so ingrained into their identity. And you can probably relate to this if you think about it. There are probably things that were ingrained into you growing up that you still do, even though they make very little sense now. And there are some really important lessons for us here, aren't there? 
even though we might think, well, we don't have a problem with food offered to idols. I have no problem eating a rare steak. I enjoy it. But we shouldn't write this list off as having no word for us today. There are, in fact, plenty of areas in which we might put a stumbling block in the way of someone else. As one biblical commentary commentator notes about these regulations sent to the Gentiles. By extension, these rules guide all Christians to use their freedom to abstain from practices that would offend the cultural sensitivities of another. What inter-ethnic and intergenerational harmony the church could know if all rushed to give up their rights to please the others. So we too must learn to be gracious to one another by seeking to use our freedom wisely. And even if we aren't dealing with the exact issues within our local church community, there are issues in which we have to show courtesy to one another and be gracious and loving with one another. And this has been the case over the past couple years during the COVID pandemic over issues like masks and vaccines. And I just wanted to say how encouraged I was by what I have witnessed here at Covenant. I think it's safe to say that everyone wasn't in perfect agreement over the effectiveness of masks and, or vaccines. People within our community were convicted in different ways over these matters, as were people all over this nation. And yet... What I witnessed here was that differences in opinion were handled with graciousness and love. I saw those on both sides of the issue willingly and joyfully restrict their own freedom for the sake of others. I saw all of you serving each other through love. And I give thanks to God that this church did not experience what I heard and read about happening in other churches. You all are to be commended for your sensitivity and love to one another through this time. And I hope one of the things that will come out of this pandemic is a sensitivity to one another's convictions on other issues. There might be other issues, non-essential issues on which there is disagreement, and how marvelous it would be if we were sensitive to one another in the same ways as we were with masks and vaccines in those other areas of disagreement. Here's a potential example. Perhaps the most common example of this issue of restricting freedom for the sake of others relates to the consumption of alcohol. Now, I don't know if any of you have a strong conviction about the consumption of alcohol. I hope all of you have the conviction for moderation in consumption of alcohol since it is clearly stated in Scripture. But perhaps there are some here who hold that when Scripture speaks of being sober-minded, it's encouraging total abstinence from alcohol. You might hold this conviction. And we could have a biblical debate on that issue, but I think that biblical wisdom as revealed here and in other places in Scripture is that I should be willing to restrict my own freedom to drink alcohol when I am around another whose conscience is tender on this issue. When I traveled with a group of colleagues in ministry to Nepal a few years back, we learned before we went that this was a conviction that the church in Nepal held. 
And so we committed ourselves to honoring our fellow believers there by abstaining from any alcoholic beverages while we were there. Regardless of what we thought about that conviction, it would have been ungracious for us to do otherwise. Actually, this is one of the many ways we sought to honor their cultural convictions while we were there with them. And by the way, I think the same thing would apply if we were with a fellow believer who had wrestled with an alcohol, addiction to alcohol. This is a way for us to love one another sincerely, earnestly, as the Apostle Peter encourages in 1 Peter 4. And this sort of thing is going to be increasingly more important as the world around us becomes more and more polarized. It is no secret that our culture today is no longer a melting pot, but more like a stew pot filled with a bunch of ingredients that don't mix very well. In this sort of environment, the church is not only challenged to live harmoniously in response to her calling in Jesus Christ, to give witness to her unity in Christ, but also in doing this, the church can provide a powerful public witness to a world plagued by ethnic, racial, and socioeconomic division and strife. Dearly beloved, we have an opportunity to show the world a unity that is able to transcend all of our differences. And these differences aren't trivialized by the gospel, right? It isn't like diversity is eliminated in the church. The church isn't meant to be a group of people who all look and think alike. God intends for there to be diversity. This is part of the glory of his creation. But all that sets us apart from one another is shown to be no match for the unity we share in Jesus Christ. As one biblical scholar notes about Acts 15, here is great news, the great good news for Theophilus and for us. A gospel that recognizes diversity yet enables harmonious living based on a higher unity, our identity in Christ. This gets us to one final important lesson that we learn about dealing with conflict in the church from Acts 15. We too must be careful about promoting our own version of Christianity, imposing non-biblical requirements on others. While we must stand firm in the essentials, there must be liberty in the non-essentials. This is a motto of the EPC, if you didn't know. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. We didn't come up with this motto. It's a motto of the church, has been a motto in the church for generations. The fact is that it's very easy for us to convince ourselves that how we do things is the right way, meaning the only way. We have to be very, very careful, though. It might be the best way for our cultural context, but God's universal church looks very different in different places. Anyone who's worshiped in churches throughout the world can tell you this. And our cultural traditions would not do well to be imposed on others in other places. This is a hard lesson for the Jewish Christians in Acts 15. I pray it isn't a hard lesson for us. We need to hold the line on the essentials. We need to go to Scripture to root ourselves in our doctrine and practice. There will be moments of disagreement over non-essentials. And in those moments, I pray that we would learn a lesson or two from Acts 15. 
that we would be committed to loving each other and honoring each other and supporting each other in a way that promotes peace and unity. And to God be all the glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the blessing of unity of mind and spirit that we have enjoyed here at Covenant. Lord, help us in the time ahead to continue to love each other earnestly, to show courtesy to one another, even limiting our own freedom on account of one another. And Lord, we pray that your peace would reign among us. May we be a beacon of light in the unity that we share with one another. May it give witness to the unity that is shared within the Godhead. Lord, may there be a harmony that exists between us that all the world can see as those who are one in Jesus Christ and are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray and for his sake. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Philippian creed from Philippians 2. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even 